The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the time we have to be together to study you. Lord, it's never, uh, uh, it's, it's, let's speak positively, always right for us to study you. Always right for us to feed our minds and our hearts on what the scripture says about you, your nature, your essential being. Oh Lord, we starve away from you. We, we uh, yearn to be near you. We yearn to be close to you. And that yearning, O oh Lord, I think is a gift from God. It's something you put inside us to yearn for you, to hunger and thirst. It's evidence of spiritual life. It should bring us great delight to know that we yearn to know you, even if we don't know you the way we should. And Father, I pray that that would somewhat be remedied tonight, that study of this theology of God, these communicable attributes tonight would enable us to know you better and to worship you. I pray that you'd make us happy by this study, Lord. We should be joyful. We should be genuinely joyful and blessed to know you and to know that you love us and that you're at peace with us in Christ. And Father, I pray that you would teach us some things we haven't known tonight that we'd have the joy of discovery and uh, enable us, O Lord, to live according to those things that you teach us, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we continue in our doctrine of the uh, uh, study of God, uh, we're doing an attribute study. Um, In other words, we're studying the attributes of God, and the attributes of God are descriptions of Him. They answer the question, what kind of God or what kind of being is he? What is he like? And uh, so the Bible obviously discourages, forbids any physical portraiture of God. It cannot be done. There's no representation you, you can make of God in heaven or earth or under the earth. Nothing there is that can represent him. That's why he forbids the making of these representations. All right. However, God has given us concepts. He's given us words. God is like this. He's like that, etc. And so those are the attributes. And so you just go through the scriptures, the 66 books of the Bible, and just try to ask this question always. Uh, what does this passage teach me about God? What is God like? And so theologians have been doing that for centuries, 20 centuries, and have organized their thoughts for us, and they come up with these attributes. And then the attributes are divided themselves into two main categories, communicable and incommunicable attributes. The incommunicable attributes are those attributes that are unique to God alone, things that are true only of God. They they cannot be and have not been communicated to us as the creatures, as created, created beings. And so we've been studying that. Now we turn our attention to the communicable attributes. And it's good for us to know about these communicable attributes because you should really look on them as part of your birthright as Christians. This is what we're going to be when we're done being saved. Isn't that beautiful? When you think about it, we are going to be perfect in wisdom and in knowledge and, and in goodness and mercy and love and, and justice and all these. We're going to be, we're going to be um, uh, conformed to the image of Christ. We're going to be like him. And so that's uh, really exciting for us to study that, isn't it? To get to know what God is going to do in us. Um, But realize, even so, as we are perfected in Christ, we will still be different, uh, essentially different from God. We will not be God. We will be like God. Do you know there's an infinite difference between being God and being like God? And praise God for that infinite difference. He's, He's the creator. He's the king. He's God. We will never be him. But we were created to be like God. And uh, we can look forward to that. And so these communicable attributes are a very delicious study for us. And they're organized on this front page here into a a variety of, and there's 20 attributes here, uh, attributes describing God's being, spirituality and invisibility, Uh, mental attributes, the mind of God, the mind of God, his knowledge or omniscience, his wisdom and his truthfulness, faithfulness, moral attributes of God, his goodness, love, mercy, uh, grace and patience, holiness, peace or order, um, righteousness or justice, jealousy and wrath. These are some of God's, these are God's moral attributes in this list. Um, Attributes of purpose also, the will of God, the freedom of God, his omnipotence or power of sovereignty, etc. And then there are these summary attributes such as God's perfection, his blessedness, beauty, glory. So that's one list. You can do actually a number of lists. 
But as I said before, I don't think that there are many more than between 20 and 30 attributes of God altogether. Um, so this is a you know a pretty good list right here. Uh, anything else, you're really just getting to synonyms at that point. It really is just a different word for the same thing. All right, and frankly, some of them are very hard to distinguish between anyway. You know, different difference between mercy and grace is really very fine and difficult to know. Okay, very much overlap between justice and righteousness. Lots of similarities between those two, etc. Okay, uh, so let's move on. Let's start looking at them one at a time. All right, let's start with this uh, attribute describing God's being spirituality. So you may think, what is God made out of? You know, what is God? So what is God made out of? He isn't made, so we'll just start there. He's not made of anything because he's not made. Of what does he consist? Uh, what does he consist of? Again, we would have to answer, he doesn't consist of anything. He's not made up of energy or, or you know, intention or purpose or any of this. We are given instead this word, spirit. We are told God is spirit and we have the permission. Scripture is the one that gives us permission to speak about God in certain ways. So we have the permission to use Bible language and not to innovate. So we have this language, God is spirit. That's what we're told. So he's not made of anything. He's spirit. All right. John 4, 24. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. So he's talking to um, the Samaritan woman and she's, you remember how she brings up that controversy between the Jews and Samaritans concerning the right place of worship. And it went deeper than that. Just like circumcision represented the whole of the Mosaic Covenant. So the place of worship is basically, are the Jews right or the Samaritans right? But uh, you, you remember why she brought it up, of course, because Jesus had brought up her marital status, her moral standing before God, and she didn't want to discuss that. Um, she did note that he was a prophet, but said, you know, our fathers say that we should worship on this, this mountain. What a sideways leap that was. But what's so amazing about that whole encounter is she ends up going exactly where Jesus wants to go anywhere. Anyway, she ends up talking about worship. And in effect, that's why he brought up her sin anyway. He wanted her to worship God. And sin was blocking that worship. And, and so addressing the sin problem was really getting at the root issue. He wanted her to worship in spirit and truth. And basically, he's saying, I am here right now as the effort that God is making to seek out those who will worship him in spirit and truth. By the way, it's interesting in John 4 how the whole account begins uh, saying that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, as somebody who believes in eternal predestination, I think he had to go through there because she was there. And he had to have that encounter with her so that he could bring her into the fold. She was one of the elect, and he's going to bring her in. And he did very effectively bring her in. And not just her, but a whole harvest of Samaritans. So it's a marvelous, marvelous encounter. But there's some interesting things that get brought up. And it has to do with the place of worship. And so Jesus is answering what is the proper place of worship. And he says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. God is spirit. Now, so what he's doing there is he's saying, you're bringing up the issue of the location of worship, proper location. The answer to that is God is spirit. And so basically then it addressed the issue of location. There is no best location to worship God. There is no bad. And we already covered some of this with the, with the omnipresence of God. God isn't in any one location. Now, of course, there is a best location if God's commanded you to bring all of your, your offerings to this one place that he would choose out of all the tribes. Then you're violating God's law if you don't do what he said. But that's a different matter, isn't it? Just like the promises of God in some way bind God to certain behavior patterns. So also the commands of God be bound worship to that one location in Jerusalem. Really what Jesus was doing was announcing the new covenant era. When the time of animal sacrifice is done, the time of the Jewish nation as the, the launching pad really for the Messiah, the, the, the context of the Messiah was finished. And uh, Jesus uh, or the Apostle Paul said that God had broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile by abolishing in his flesh, the law with its commandments and regulations. So that time was finished. And so he's saying, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. Praise God for that. What are the plane fares for Jerusalem these days? And their security issues. Aren't you glad you don't have to go up there three times a year? You know, and uh, so we're free from that. Uh, God is spirit. And, 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 but we're going deeper than that now. 
And we're saying that God is every bit as much here to worship as he is over there. Mount Gerizim, Mount Jerusalem, anywhere, mountain in Jerusalem, anywhere you go, God is there and you can worship him. God is spirit. That's what we're getting at. Okay. So what does that mean? What does that mean? That God is spirit. We don't really know. There's a couple of other verses here. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 4. I've already alluded to it, but you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything heaven above or on the earth beneath the waters below. Because there's nothing, there's no, there's no physical representation that can, that can capture spirit. Seriously, what can you make? What does a spirit look like? I mean, what, how, how do you, you there's nothing physical to, that, that could capture it. Isaiah 40:18. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare it to? It's a rhetorical question or two rhetorical questions. None. There's nothing. You can't make any physical representation of God. It's impossible. So then what does it mean that God is spirit? Wayne Grudem said this. I, I, I learn a lot from theologians on how they answer questions. So when you don't know, there's a lot of different ways to say you don't know. Okay? So this is one way to say I don't know. He says, whatever this means, it's a kind of existence unlike anything else in creation. Okay? That's a fancy way of saying I don't know what it means that God is spirit. He's just not physical like we are. Okay? That's all. All right? It's a kind of existence, though, he says, that is far superior to our material existence. You know? As God is, uh, you know, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so is God's essence higher than ours. So it's just better to be spirit than to be physical. It's just a better thing. All right? Now, I'm not saying that it's, it's wicked or evil to have bodies. No, we know that it's very good for us to have bodies. And Jesus took on a resurrection body. All, all we're saying is that this is a superior kind of existence. Um, so, definition, God's spirituality means that God exists as a being that, it is, that is not made up or made of any matter, has no parts or dimensions, is unable to be perceived by our bodily senses, and is more excellent than any other uh, kind of existence. So that's his definition of what it means that God is spirit. Why is this uh, uh, called a communicable attribute? Well, because Scripture reveals that there are other spirits in the universe and that we ourselves have spirits in which we uh, worship Him. Hebrews uh, 1.14 says, Are not all angels, for example, ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So angels are spirits. Or this gets very uh, personal for us as human beings. Uh, Hebrews 12.23 says, You have come to God, the judge of all men, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Here he's describing the invisible Mount Zion the heavenly reality of where uh, you know, God is worshipped and where there are these angels and all this. He's comparing it to um, uh, Mount Sinai, which received the Old Covenant. You know, the whole book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ in the New Covenant to Moses in the Old Covenant. And so he's just saying it's just a superior situation. This is better than Mount Sinai. Mount Zion is better. And as you've come to that, you come by faith, by the way. You don't need to go anywhere, but just by faith, you've come to God, the judge of all men, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Now, what is that referring to? The spirits of righteous men made perfect. Yeah. Those are the, the, the dear departed. <laughs> departed from what? What do they depart from? The bodies primarily and from this world. And so they are absent from the body and present with the Lord. But they still are Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. We covered that in my teaching on the, on the resurrection. They still, there, there is Abraham, right? <laughs> Wherever there is. I don't know what that means, but he is a spirit being now. Okay? Now, he will not forever be a spirit being because God has promised him resurrection and all believers in Christ. We will someday receive resurrection bodies. But they are the departed spirits. What is it that's absent from the body and present with the Lord? Souls it's, or spirits. Either way, I don't make a firm distinction. Yeah, John. Question. Um, when you say it won't always be spirit beings, but we'll take on a resurrection body. Well, not, we won't always just be just spirits. Be spirits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, we still will have spirits, but we will also have added to us, as Jesus had added to him, a body. He pre-existed the adding of the body. And so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all believers who die before the second coming of Christ will have added to them resurrection bodies. But they at one point had bodies in the past. You, you understand? Susan, were you going to ask something? Yeah. 
Okay, all right. So let's keep going. Um, it's communicable attribute because there are these other spirits. Uh, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Okay. Second attribute, invisibility. And this one kind of goes hand in hand to some degree, doesn't it? Invisibility, God is invisible. Okay, definition, God's invisibility uh, means that God's total essence, all of his spiritual being will never be able to be seen by us. And yet God still shows himself to us through visible created things. All right, there are many such assertions concerning God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God at any time, it says in John 1.18. Now, this may seem to be a direct contradiction of certain Old Testament scriptures, but it isn't. I think you look at Grudem's definition, you know what I mean. You can't see me, all of me. God can show portions of himself like the so-called hind or back portions of God that he showed to Moses when he hit him in the cleft of the rock. God can show aspects of himself. Uh, people saw representations of God in the Old Testament and used simple language saying, I saw the Lord and I saw God and that kind of thing. But John 1.18 is giving us a different kind of, look, of aspect and saying, we haven't seen the totality of God. All right, And the implication in this section here is he can't be seen anyway. It's not seeing like that, that... Um, you know, that would show us God. Uh, First Timothy 6, 15 and 16 makes this quite plain. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. Look, Look at this. Whom no one has seen or can see. In other words, there's a sense in which you will never see God. Now, I know Revelation says that they will see his face. But just you just can't see all that God is. He's invisible in that regard. And again, that just has to do with what seeing really is. Okay, what is seeing? What do we mean by that? If somebody's invisible, if God's invisible, what are we saying by that? Okay, so physical process. So the light, in some mysterious way, hits the matter, the stuff, bounces off it, comes back, and tells you something about it. Its shape, its colors, its distance from you, all that kind of thing. There's nothing for the light to hit. (laughs) Okay, it just, it doesn't hit anything. So it would have to come from God, that light, and, and therefore it's a created being. That's why Grudem says God displays himself through created things. All right, <clears throat> but of himself, there's, I mean, he has to transfer it over into creation for us to receive it. That's what, that's what he's getting at here. You can't see him and you'll never be able to see him in the, in the sense of light hitting him and bouncing off him. Yes, go ahead. Doesn't it talk about uh, the brilliance of God? Is it possible that you can't see because it's so bright that uh, your eyes won't uh, behold? Well, again, though, if you look at the language of 1 Timothy 6, it says that he dwells in unapproachable light. You know, was it Psalm 18? He wraps himself in, in light as with a garment, that kind of thing. Light isn't who God is, although it does say God is light. It's just, it's more like that's representational language. You see what I'm saying? God's different than light. You know, if you could say, well, God is pure light. Well, no, I mean, he's more than that. He's, you know, yes, he is light. God is light. But that doesn't sum up everything God wants us to know about him. So I think what it means there is that, I mean, God's as bright as he wants to be. You know, <laughs> if he wants to be bright, he can be bright, very bright. I've often wondered that about heaven, just thinking it just seems painful to just be in this perfectly bright place all the time. You know, it's like, it's all right. They're going to give us all Ray-Bans when we get there and it's going to be, it's going to be okay. God's going to, you know, I, I don't, I can't picture that. And it's part of the depressing view of heaven that Randy Alcorn's book, I'm in heaven, helped me out of you know it's like this place where it's like there's no features or anything it's just this perfect white light all the time it's like you know we're all like oh there you are you know and and this brilliant light filling everything all the time i just don't think that's the way it is i think god emanates light to show himself and his nature to us but he isn't light in and of itself that's i guess what i'm saying he he shows it out for us puts it out you know, Christ is God's light. You know, he is the radiance of God's glory, it says, and the exact representation of his being, Hebrews 1. So anyway, we could go on like this. It's all very mysterious. So having said all that, though, we will have some satisfying vision of God. 
there is something called the beatific vision or the blessed vision. We will see him as he really is uh, in some mysterious way. We will see his face in Revelation 22 and that's going to be very satisfying to us. It is the reward we get. He is our shield and our very great reward and we will get to see him and it will, it will be perfectly satisfying to us. More so than the most beautiful thing you've ever seen here on earth. Think about the most beautiful, spectacular scenery you've ever seen. Whatever it is. God's, the vision of God will be more satisfying than that to you. It will be deeply, richly satisfying. But God is still invisible even then. I guess that's, uh, that's the best I can do at it, guys. Go ahead. Is it, is it wrong to think maybe that this sight will be spiritual sight, not physical sight? If we're worshiping Him in spirit and truth, won't we also be enjoying Him in spirit and truth and, in, yeah. and interacting with Him in spirit and truth? Yeah, um, yeah, I do think so. I think we can we can have have accurate, true, right knowledge of God, just not comprehensive knowledge of God. So even that spiritual sight will be limited. You know, uh, we we pray that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we would know certain things. So I think even then we'll have. But I don't know. I don't know about our resurrection eyeballs. I'm thinking we'll have some. And I don't know how that light's going to work, but I think there will actually be light and, and the glory of God will be identified that way. I, I, I guess so. After a while, you just, I, you know, in the spirit of my mentor, d- departed mentor, John Calvin, speculation isn't too helpful at some point. At some point you say, okay, I can't go too much beyond this. I don't know. Yeah, Susan. Um, would you care to comment anything on the materialist explanation for... Um we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The cause and effect, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's a wonderful thing. You know, in other words, it's the the vision of Christ there is just transformational, and and there's an aspect of seeing him that just fixes everything. I mean, you know, we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling right now, by the means God's given us, and they are of limited effectiveness right now. And you know what I'm talking about? It has to do with the Word of God. It has to do with uh, with uh, the indwelling spirit and the body of Christ, the ministry of spiritual gifts and all that. Apparently, the vision of Christ in this sense is 100% instantly effective for glorification. Just boom, done. And so I think he's reserved that power for that vision of Christ. When we see him as he is, we will instantly be glorified. We'll be just like him. It's beautiful when you think about it. In the meantime, we muddle along. And it's not like there's anything wrong with the Word of God and there's anything wrong with the, with the indwelling Spirit or any of that. Just like the law. There's nothing wrong with the law either, but it was made ineffective by certain things. And so these, these things are only of limited value. We see through a glass just darkly. Then we'll see face to face. Mark, are you going to say something? Invisibility? Well, it's kind of communicable in Abraham's case. I've never seen him <laughs> We can't, I mean, there's no light that can hit Abraham right now either. So I think it just goes with the fact that spirit is communicable too. You know, I guess that's the best I can do. And I didn't put this in this category, but I think it's probably right. I think it's probably right as a communicable attribute, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are just an awful lot of spirit. I think any spirit being is really invisible in one sense. But not in the sense that God is just like, you know, we are spirit, but not like God. I mean, there's always this gap between us and God. That's all I'm saying. Good question. Let's keep going now into a new category, and that's God's mental uh, attributes. What an incredible thing it is to ponder the mind of God. You know, I've been enjoying doing that in Matthew 22 when Jesus' enemies come and play chess with him, try to take him on a little bit mentally. It's kind of fun, you know, when you watch it. You know, and, and again, Jesus is just so far above them mentally, but his intentions toward them are always good and loving and redemptive. I mean, he could wipe up the floor with it. He'd say, let me tell you 700 things about you that none of your friends know, but let's get going, okay? And boom. He could just totally do mental things. He could run, run rings around people. He wasn't trying to do that. He would answer their questions with things that would help them understand the true nature of resurrection or the, the two great commandments or whatever. Um, but the, the mind of God, amazing. So what are we talking about? Let's start with this doctrine of God's omniscience. Omniscience. Um, God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple eternal act. So thank you, Wayne Grudem. I'm glad that there are guys that get, get paid for doing this. And there it is, all right? Um, God fully knows himself. Now, that's an infinite statement right there. Just, I mean, what we're studying God here, and God is the only one who completely understands himself, completely knows himself through and through. He knows who he is. 
And that's an amazing thing. And he doesn't just know himself, but he also knows all things. Everything that there is to know, he knows. Which is staggering. You know, if you really start, I mean, I think if you're really well-educated, you ought to be humble because you know how little you know. It's the people who aren't well-educated just don't know, don't realize how little they know. Like, I mean, I would think you, somebody with like four or five PhDs, if there's such a person, would have a sense that they know 1% or less of even the fields they studied. You know what I'm saying? You just get that feeling. I said, there's always more books, there's more history, there's always more, and just in those areas that I zeroed in on. Now, they may be arrogant and really just want to lie about how much they really don't know, but the fact of the matter is, it's just an unbelievable amount of stuff there is to know. I've talked about this before, but I've never forgotten my experience when I was at MIT and I worked for this the the uh, carpentry shop and I had to go around inspecting fire extinguishers and I went down into the discard basement of the humanities library. It's one of ten libraries they have there. Uh, Harvard's library is bigger than MIT's, but between the two they have a huge number of books. And so these were the books they were done with, but they didn't want to throw them out, you know, or burn them or whatever. So they just put them down. And um, in the basement was the ceiling was maybe half again as high as this ceiling. It's a really high ceiling down there, and there were just these stacks of books. And they weren't in any order because they were discarded. But they were just down there. And the eye, you know, the eye went on as far as you could, the eye could see, this, this sub-basement area with this eerie kind of ugly fluorescent light down there just forever. And then in this direction and that direction. And, you know, I, I remember I was just like, you know, and I, I went and there was this like 500-page book on something I'd never even heard of, you know? <laughs> And, you know, it opened up to page 261 and there's some stuff you didn't know, you know, and put it back there and it's like, mm. you know, so at that point I went, mm, you know, I don't know anything, you know, I know very, very little. And, and that's it. That was just the humanities library. Never mind. And by the way, you don't go to MIT for humanities. Trust me on that. All right. Um, but, you know, imagine their engineering libraries and all the other stuff. But it was just whatever. It was staggering. And I was small in my own estimation. So take that image and bring it to this doctrine of the omniscience of God. It's really a, almost terrifying. All that God knows. He knows all things. Actual. I mean, just everything that ever has been or is now or will be. We already talked about his eternity, but he just knows all of it. Everything. It's really amazing. And all things possible, and we'll get to that in a moment, in one simple eternal act. It's not like God has to recollect you know what I'm saying? I know we discussed this, but God remembered Noah. Look, it wasn't a mental effort. God was always knowing Noah, okay? Before Noah was born, God knew Noah. It's phenomenological language. It's like God was attending to Noah as he needed help, okay? But the thing is, instantly God knows all that he knows. So, I mean, I'm not sure what computers Google uses, but they're scary fast. You know what I'm saying? They boast about it, too, 0.07 seconds. Like, get that off. I don't need to know how little time it took for you to give me 28 million responses, all right? God's better, better, faster than that. Instant access to all his knowledge. And what's amazing, we'll get to wisdom, but, you know, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge all the facts. Wisdom is weaving it together into some truth and that benefits somebody, you know? He's doing that too. He's just got it all figured out. And that's, that's a beautiful thing to me as we think about God's sovereignty over history and all that. God, I, I really do believe, and you know, it's controversial, but this is the best possible world that there can be to achieve God's ends. This is the best one there can be. He's thought, thought about them all. And you may think that there's a better world, a world in which there wasn't that earthquake in Haiti. God disagrees because there was the earthquake in Haiti. He has thought all of this out, all of it, to achieve his ends. Now, his ends may be different than yours, but actually, to some degree, if what you want is peace and happiness, everyone happy and all that, God has that in mind too. And he's working toward it in a way that's just so magnificent and wonderful. So for me, I absolutely believe in the best of all possible worlds and that God's thought it all through. And it all comes from this doctrine, doctrine of omniscience. All right, well, let's support it. These are highfalutin claims. You know, um, Can we actually support this in the Bible? Well, so many things. You really, I have to be honest, this proof text approach is really to some degree unsatisfying. I think the way you get at God's omniscience is just look at how he is in the 66 books. And he's just never caught off guard and he just knows everything all the time. It's not any one verse, although there are some good proof text verses on this. It's just, you know, it's just God. You know, he just knows, always knows. And it's marvelous, really. Uh, how about this one? Job 37, 16. Do you, do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge? Okay. So this is, uh, I think, Elihu speaking, and he ascribes to God perfection and knowledge. 
First John 3.20, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Well, that's, if you're looking for a proof text, that's not too bad. All right. <laughs> he knows everything is translated into, into the uh, Latin as omni, omniscience. All right. God is omniscient. So God knows all things. All right. Well, let's look at some topics. God knows himself perfectly. Amazing since God is him, himself an infinite being. So 1 Corinthians 2.10 and 11 really speaks of this. This is the inner search mechanism of God. And it's the spirit of God. It's really quite amazing here. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. <coughs> For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So there you get an insight into the spirit of God. The spirit searches the mind of God and knows it completely. So that's an intertrinitarian kind of view. And it just boggles the mind. Lest you should have small thoughts of the Holy Spirit. Don't. Because he knows the mind of God perfectly. That's, by the way, put to, to work for us in Romans chapter 8 when it says that, that the Spirit intercedes for us in accordance with God's will. Because the Spirit knows the mind of God perfectly. Okay? So God knows himself perfectly. Secondly, uh, God... And by the way, we're going to get at some point to the blessedness of God, the happiness of God. That's why God's so happy. He just knows himself. And we'd be happier too if we knew him better. You know? That's the whole thing. The better we get to know God, the happier you'll be. And God is just so completely happy because he just knows himself perfectly. And, you know, and that's, and that's a beautiful thing. I mean, it really is. I mean, it would make no sense at all to be omnipotent and miserable. You know, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. It, you know, if you're omnipotent, then fix it. Whatever's bothering you, fix it. You know, <laughs> there's no sense at all in being omnipotent and miserable. So he is not omnipotent and miserable. He's omnipotent and, and blessed. Blessed. So he knows himself perfectly. He knows all things actual. That is... Uh, things that did, do, or will correspond to reality. He knows what really was. And I talked about this in my, in my sermon this past Sunday on, on truth. Truth corresponds to reality. The reason that Satan works blindness is he doesn't want us to know the reality. And the reality of the universe is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But God knows everything in creation, too, that corresponds to reality, the way it really was. Or another word for reality would be truth. What really, really was. Okay, so he knows all things. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. So that's God kind of poking around in the past and in the future and just knowing everything. He knows the past and he knows the future very well, perfectly. And then Hebrews 4, 13. And this is really a, a, you know, a judgment day verse more than anything, I think. Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Okay, NIV, I think, enhances a bit. It just says him with whom we have to do. But the context is one of judgment, I think. And so when you give God an account, you won't be telling him anything. All right, he knows. He knows. And so that's, I mean, Jesus says it when he says, when you pray, just keep in mind God knows what you need before you ask him. You know, all of these things. All right, so God knows all things actual. Everything that did or uh, does uh, correspond to reality or will in the future. Now, this is really kind of interesting. God knows all things possible, past, present, and future. In other words, what might have been. What might have been. Or what might be, but isn't. Okay? Uh, he knows things contrary to fact. Like, you remember the story when David was... Uh, contemplating his next move. By the way, one of the big distinctions in 1 Samuel between David and Saul was that David consistently inquired of the Lord and Saul didn't. Just one of the big differences between the two. And that's a lesson to me. Ask God first. You know, ask Him. And I, I forget to do this. I'm up here teaching it, but I don't do it like I should. Make a decision, ask God. What should I do? What should I do? I don't think we do that anywhere near as much as we should, but David in this one case did. And he said, now, will the citizens of Keilah hand me over to Saul? If Saul comes knocking, will they, will they uh, hand me over? First of all, he says, will Saul come down? And the Lord answered, he will. And then David said, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. Did they? No. Because David left. <laughs> he took the advice and left. So the word they will were provisional. In other words, and it's implied, David knew it was implied. God knew exactly why David was asking. I don't want to get trapped in a, in a walled city. I don't want it to be my prison. 
And if they're not going to fight for me, I want out of here. So can you tell me before I get in a bind? All right. What do you want to know? Well, if I stay here, are they going to hand me over? Yes. All right. Then I'm not going to stay here. Fine. But you understand what's going on here. God knows what might happen if he does a course of action he's not going to take. Do you understand how explosive that idea is? It's really quite explosive. That's what leads me to the conclusion of this being the best possible universe. Because God has studied all the other universes, all of them, all the ones you think would be better. <laughs> he's looked at it. All right. He's already been there with his mind and his goodness and his wisdom and all that. He's already been there and said no to that one. Yes, go ahead. But maybe we need to ask him more and maybe eventually, yeah. you know. Go back again to John, John 14, 21. And this is for all of us, not just for you, Susan. But um, whoever, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me be loved by my Father. And I too will love him and manifest or disclose myself to him. In other words, I believe that our level of manifestation or disclosure from God is proportional to our obedience. And I just think that, you know, if we obey better, he'll show more. I just think that's how it goes. And it's not, I'm saying this to myself, to all of us. Basically, if we want that kind of neat stuff going on, just be really, really obedient to what you already know to do. Just try that. So we'll, we'll take it from there. But, but there are just some times, listen, friends, there are some times when you just need to know. You need to know what to do. And then just bring, bring James chapter 1 right to God and say, you told me to ask for wisdom. I need to know what to do. And he will. And then what he tells you to do, just go do it. You know, that's why he says, when you ask, don't doubt. Okay, don't doubt that I'm going to tell you. Just get up and go act. And then, you know, that's important. I think it's, that's very important. God gives us, gives us wisdom. All right, keep going. Matthew eleven twenty one. I preached, man, I'll tell you, I preached on, I'll never forget my sermons on Matthew eleven twenty twenty to 30. I learned so much from those. And I went and preached uh, those sermons at Southern Seminary, a couple of, you know, those, you know, and it was really interesting, the reactions, because the thing is, it's really hard to controvert what's there. I mean, some of the greatest sovereignty verses in the entire Bible are in Matthew eleven twenty to 30. No one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. I mean, Jesus, I got that backwards, but Jesus basically says, I decide who to reveal the Father to, me. And if I want to reveal Him to you, I'll reveal Him to you, you know? That's, in effect, what He's saying. And, and at the end of that, He gives them a, this general gospel invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and buried. You know, He doesn't have any problem putting all that together, sovereignty and, and human freedom and all that. He just does. But it's just amazing. And in the middle of this, or at the beginning, He's talking about Chorazin and Bethsaida. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. When I was at Southern, I asked this question, then why weren't they done there? Then why weren't those miracles done in Tyre and Sidon? I actually went through it carefully. I said, was it too far to go? No, he actually was there. That's where he cured the Syrophoenician woman's daughter who called out, the Canaanite woman. He was right there. Could have done it. But he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. You remember that whole thing. But he's saying, I just want you to know. If these miracles had been done there, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, well then why weren't they done there? Because the ministry wouldn't be effective. He already said it would be far more effective than this one. Actually, it would be completely effective. Then why didn't he do it there? It wasn't his sovereign will. He wasn't choosing that they would repent in sackcloth and ashes long ago. Let that boggle your mind for a while. Let that disturb your Arminianism for a while. It just doesn't work, friends. It just doesn't fit. Someone, uh, one of the professors afterwards came and said, that was one of the most courageous sermons I've ever heard at Southern Seminary Chapel. I said, oh, the courage, it's just right there in the text. There's no courage involved. It's just this is the implication of what Jesus is saying. But I'm taking it for a different purpose here. Do you not understand Jesus knows conditions contrary to fact? I actually talked in that sermon about It's a Wonderful Life. Remember when Clarence shows what the world would have been like without you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> God can do that any time. He can, you know, he, he's figured out what the world would have been like without you and decided not to have one. That's, a, that's amazing. He decided to have a world with you. And, you know, it's really just a, a mind-boggling thing that God knows all the conditions contrary to fact as well. And he has studied it. So let's trust him when tragedies happen, when other things happen. Let's just trust that he knows what he's doing. 
It doesn't in any way lessen what Judas did in turning him in for 30 pieces of silver or any of that. It's mysterious, but he's responsible for his great wickedness. We're responsible for our bad decisions, but just understand this. God has already studied it all. And, I, you know, corresponding to this is that one statement I've made before. It continues to be jarring. It will be jarring forever, but God has never learned anything and he never will. Okay, keep that in mind. God instantly has access to all of his knowledge and he doesn't learn anything. You're not going to tell him anything he doesn't know. You're not going to surprise him. You're not going to come at him a whole different angle. So that puts Matthew 22 in a whole different light, you know, as his enemies are coming together to try to trick Jesus and trap him and move him in some direction he doesn't want to go. He said, I'm going exactly where I want to go. You can't trick me or trap me. I'm going here because I want to die. I know you don't understand that because you want to kill me, okay? But I'm here to lay down my life. I'm not going to be tricked into it. I'm doing it willfully, okay? And then uh, there are other examples. This one of, uh, uh, who's this king? Ahaz? I think it is Ahaz. Anyway, Elisha tells him to strike the ground and he doesn't strike it enough and says, look, if you had done it more then you would have had a greater victory, but instead now you only beat him a little bit. Okay, so there's actually lots of examples of this. Yes? That's right. Only one. That's exactly right. And keep up with the rest of the universe. Staggering. It all it, and it goes beyond the, even that. God is able to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn at the same time. When we get to studying God's compassion, I mean, God's compassionate on billions of people all at once. And yet he's not conflicted in that. I don't know how that works, you know, but he's just, you know, he's able to do that. It's just amazing. Seven different trains of thought at the same time. Yeah. And, and that helped me to see God's mm-hmm. example creating a person like that so immediately, uh, mm-hmm. similar, but uh, how God can, can do that trillions of times over. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Uh, the ultimate multitasker. That's God. I mean, the best multitasker ever. He's doing lots of stuff all at once. Yes, go ahead. Well, you're raising such interesting questions. I was just going to make this comment related to Matthew 11, 20 through 25, um, the fact that Jesus or Jesus didn't do the act in Tyre and Sidon because in some sense he really didn't have to because he knew their heart, he knew that they would have repented and that has consequence because he says in the day of judgment they will not be judged as severely as these people. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, they didn't really need to repent because he knew their hearts, I guess. That's true, but in one yes, sense, I, I don't want to go that far. Because I think there's a big difference between would have repented and did repent. Don't you guys think there's a big difference between that? And so here's the thing. You know, I think you actually do need to repent. And if you read the history of Tyre and Sidon, they had a lot to repent from. I mean, there were a lot of bad sins. They, they were a wicked, wicked port city that did all, you know, it was bad. Um, and so I think the thing is, it's like, yeah, they would have repented if I'd done that, but I chose not to do it. And it just really is an insight into God. I mean, God can, it really is true. God can save anyone. You know, some may have higher levels of threshold of, look, if, if I put in these six miracles, this, these five persuasions, these bad things in there, if I mix that concoction together, they will come to faith in Christ. Does he know that for every human being? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I think an hour in heaven, an hour in hell would do it, don't you think? You know, one of each and then back, you hear the gospel, boom, we're done. You know, we, I mean, that talk about mass revival, we get all six billion people. All of them all at once. Just give them an hour in heaven, an hour in hell, and then sh- now I'm going to give you one chance. You know, you, you go this way. If you, don't, you, know, you know what to do. And, you know, God can do that. Everybody's got their threshold. All right? He's just not choosing to do that. So, yeah, go ahead. I've heard of this guy. There is no middle road. Go. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I accept that. Yeah, I accept that. I don't know that I accept the whole shebang. I haven't read what I've yeah, heard about it yet. I don't know that, you know. 
I, I'm leery of innovation, especially yes. in this area. So, but I, I think that's so. I think that God only trucks in good things. And so he basically gives good things, but he knows the effect it's going to have on a bad heart. So if you give a, you know, a corrupt materialist a lot of material blessings, what's, what's going to happen? They're going to be hardened and corrupted. But they are in and of themselves good things. You know, you give somebody who's a glutton lots of good foods and all that, they're going to kill themselves with it. But they are still good gifts. And God very wisely knows what's going on in those hearts. So it's a mystery, and we're going to have a hard time putting it all together. But I, to me, it's still comforting, this doctrine of God's omniscience, isn't it? It's still company, comforting to know God's already been to tomorrow, seen it, and just is coming back from it and saying, don't be afraid. You know, don't be afraid. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And all that omniscience. Okay, uh, Psalm 139, of course, the most important passage in, in the Bible on God's omniscience. So, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together, O oh Lord, this kind of thing. It's just an amazing meditation. And what's powerful about Psalm 139 is it's really, and I, my yearning always is to show you just how practical theology is and can be. It can be very abstruse and ivory towerish and all that, but it really ought not to be. This is God's world, and to study God can never be bad or wrong or impractical. But Psalm 139 is a real meditation on God's omniscience applied to me and my life. There's a lot of me language. Oh, Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You hem me in behind and before. It's all about me. And, and that's okay. It's, 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 I mean, just as long as you don't forget that there's six billion me's. Um, but it's still an awesome thing to think God is just totally knowing me completely. And at the end, how David invites him to do that. Search me, O oh God, and know me. Even though you already do, I want you to. And in fact, what he's saying is I want you to know me. It's a good thing for, for you to know me. It's a good thing for me to know that you know me. He's not afraid of that knowledge. It's a good thing. All right. By the way, that's very much the attitude that you get in John 3. Everyone who lives by the truth comes into the light. Right? That's really Psalm 139. Search me and know me. I want to, be, I want to stand in the light and have the light all over me. Because we already know that we're sinners. We know that God knows that we're sinners. We're, we're, we're able to, to, to not be ashamed because we're covered with Christ, you see. So we're not afraid to have the light all around us so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through Christ or through God. So, but the wicked man, what is he doing? Running from the light, hiding, doesn't want to be searched and known by God. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, how much more time? Good. Uh, wisdom. Let's talk about wisdom. What, before we get into this, what would you say is the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Kind of touched on it a few minutes ago, but uh, go ahead, Don. So let me pick up on what you said. Application of knowledge is wisdom. That's pretty good. Other thoughts on wisdom? It's really Christ according to First Corinthians. He is our wisdom. He is the wisdom of God. Okay. Any other thoughts on wisdom? Yeah, Margaret. Okay. Making a good a good choice. So there you bring in issues like moral issues like goodness, best, good, better, best, that kind of thing. So God knows the best course of action. That kind of, kind of thing. It's the wisdom of God is God's ability, not just to know what all the courses are, but to know which is the best one to choose. So, yes. Wisdom would be using knowledge to accomplish certain ends. Right. Very, very good. And so look at Grudem's definition. You guys have really pretty much gotten it. God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. You know, have you ever heard that expression, the ends justify the means? Okay, what does that mean to you? What does that expression? Darcy, what does that mean? You've heard that before. The ends justify the means. Yeah, yeah. Excuse to do anything you want, right? God is nothing like that, or you could say, in one perfect sense, everything like that. The ends do justify the means because the ends are just as wise as the means, and the means just as wise as the ends. Everything's been figured out, and and that's the whole thing. God doesn't ever betray his own character to get what he wants ultimately. He just never does that. He always behaves within his own perfection in his perfect character to achieve his ends. And, and that really is a beautiful thing when you think about that. What were the means that God used to save us? Think about that. How did, how did God save our sinful souls? What were the means to that end? Okay, all right. Events, all right. But centrally, 
This is the easy one, Christians. What's the central thing here? Christ's death on the cross. His blood shed on the cross. There we go. I know, I am a tricky guy. I'm a tricksy, tricksy guy. Yeah, all right. Christ crucified. Yeah, go ahead. can't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If God chooses his will <coughs> and his means, which he, we therefore acknowledge to be right and good. So it's not, yeah. you know what I'm saying? There is. You know, that's, that's, that's such a true and a powerful, powerful thing. It's really awesome. I remember I took this I was a new Christian. And I took a class on the Bible at MIT. Remember, I said you never go to, you know, humanities. And that's not where you. But I, what was I doing? Taking a Bible class for credit at MIT. But I was, for the first time, early in my Christian life, introduced to liberal theology, and it was it was good for me to see what it looked like at this early stage. Yeah, I actually took two Bible classes at MIT. That's bad. I mean, it's one thing to take one, but I actually took two. Um, and uh, we called it Blasphemy and Heresy 101 and Blasphemy and Heresy 102. You know, so that's, that's what it was. But um, he's really zeroing in on this moment when, when Abraham is interceding over Sodom and Gomorrah and asks this question, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's, that was a really big moment for him, for the professor of this class. And but it's, it's, you know, aside from his slant on it, what he made out of that, which is really not good, it still is a really important question. And God doesn't blow it off. It's like, how dare you ask me? Whatever I says is right, you know, because I'm God, that's why. Well, all that would actually be true. Um, but the implication is you creating the image of God, and when, when you get all the facts, as much of them as you need, whatever, you'll see that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, as I choose to do it, is right. You will vindicate me. And I think God does desire and will, in fact, in the end, be vindicated by us, by the righteous ones. We will vindicate God in all of his ways. We will actually say, yes, I can see it was right. That was right. And so you may be troubled by certain things. They bother you right now, whatever. Don't worry about it, because if you're a Christian, someday you'll vindicate what God did. And you'll say, you know, that was really actually right right for God to have done. It's another indication of this. The angels, and I know Landis talks about this one a lot, but when the angel uh, is pouring out this this bowl on the earth, turning all of the water, the drinkable water into blood. Remember that? And uh, what does the angel say? You talk about this a lot, I know, but what does the angel say? All right, brother. I, I, I don't know the exact thing, but basically, righteous you are, O Lord, holy and true, uh, for you have so judged. Okay. Now, what the angel is saying is he's saying, you are right to do this simply because you're doing it. But what's really fascinating to me in this whole regard is he doesn't stop his sentence there. Because they shed the blood of your prophets and now you're giving them blood to drink. Now, here's the thing. Both of those are important in my understanding of all this. He's vindicating God saying, look, whether I see it or not, you're right because you're doing it. But I see it. The angel's saying, I see it. I see the rightness of this because you're giving them blood after they shed blood. And so there's just a rightness to them. They dug a pit. They've now fallen into it. It's just like when Haman gets hung on his own gallows, right? There's just a rightness to it, you know, and a vindication there and a satisfaction to it, you see? And I think that's what's going to happen beyond judgment. We'll look back and, you know, I just don't think we're going to weep and, and wail over people that didn't make it and are in heaven, aren't in heaven with us, they're in hell. And I just don't think we're going to be troubled by it. We're just going to totally vindicate God on that and just say, God, you're right. Everything you do is right. And I just want to be with you anyway. And so if somebody doesn't love you, and I, I don't want to be with them anyway. And, and so it's just right. And it's just total vindication. So beautiful. And to some degree, then, you'll also see the justice of God in saving you. You're like, how could that be? I mean, is it kind of right for God to justify you and declare you not guilty of all your sins? No, it's right or it's wrong. And God has declared it right to declare you not guilty. And so who will lay any charge? You shouldn't even lay a charge against yourself. God has vindicated you. He said you are not guilty. You're justified. Therefore, you are. That's it. Susan, go ahead. Well, vindicating God um, regarding somebody's lack of salvation. Right. It's how do I square it with right now I can think back to what I was like before I was a Christian mm -hmm. and I really thought I was right yeah. in er things I did. Mm -hmm. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Right. So it seems like it's easy. Well, I wouldn't <coughs> become a Christian unless God intervened. Right. So it's easy to feel pretty sorry for the unbelievers. Sure because it is. Because he just hasn't intervened like that. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I 
feel like maybe I really will still feel sorry that they well, didn't come to Christ. But we, make, we have to make a distinction between what's right and appropriate now when there's still time and when now is the day of salvation and if we share the gospel with them and, and whatever, that's different than then when there's, it's over. The era, era of salvation is done and, and God's final gavel has gone down on their case and it's over. And, and so at that point, no, I, I think it's... Di- and we'll, we'll be different and we'll be exactly tracking with what God is doing. So I, I think the thing is, you know, we're, we're going to just... We're going to see what God did and we're going to vindicate it and we're going to say, absolutely, that was just the, the right way to do things. And um, I think there's far more of this than still even meets the eye. You know, a new thought to me, not relatively, but I'm starting to see how consistently every element of our salvation humbles human pride, just lays it low. And I just see that more clearly than I ever did before. Every aspect of it, you know, sovereign grace, eternal predestination humbles us. Um, just the sacrifices made, you know, Christ's blood on the cross, etc. But the sacrifices made to get us the gospel humbles us. And the fact that most of the people we know don't, aren't Christians, but we are. And, and, the, and the fact that you have to become a spiritual beggar to be saved and justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, ju- it just totally humbles us. And sanctification by working our salvation with fear and trembling, uh, just humbling, 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 humbling. And I just see that, vindicate it. Now, let me say one other thing about the, about the damned in, in hell. I don't know that they'll vindicate God. I actually think they probably won't. I think they might actually be cursing God and thinking that they're, they're there undeservedly. I don't see like the, the, the wealthy man in, in, in hell, he, he may have like saving intention toward his brothers. You know, if you could just go back and warn him. It's like, well, he's kind of good. Maybe he'll make it out. Maybe purgatory is true. Maybe, you know, he'll, he'll make it out. Just give him some chance. He's at least got a saving intention toward his brothers. But I think what's so important about that whole exchange between him and Abraham, remember? And he says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. You remember what he says? No. It's like, well, what's wrong with that no? That's what ended him up there. He rejected the word of God. It's the word that saves, right? You believe the word of God. You believe the promises of God. He rejected it. He's rejecting it still. He's there in hell and he's still rejecting the word. No, it's not enough. But if someone rises from the dead, then they'll listen. He said, look, they're not going to listen. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not listen even if someone rises from the dead. That's Jesus telling that story. He should know because he knows all things, actual and uh, <laughs> counterfactual and everything. He knows they will not repent even if someone rises from the dead. He actually did rise from the dead. Guess what? They didn't repent. So there's the bottom line. The thing is, he's in hell and he's still not vindicating God concerning the efficacy of the word of God. So I wonder if those in hell will just be tormenting themselves forever saying, I don't, I don't deserve to be here. I'm different from all of these. I'm different from Satan over there. I should be out of here. Go ahead. Does Judgment Day change that? I mean, I can... I, 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 the sense I get in hearing you speak is that at, 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 after the judgment, mm-hmm. no one will find cause for appeal. Mm-hmm. Everybody will... Whether they were judged righteous or judged unrighteous, mm-hmm. they will accept it as the correct judgment. I mean, Maybe so. Yeah, I mean, I, I could imagine it that way. And again, I, you know, it comes a point where you just don't want to speculate too much. I guess what, what drives me here is not just the Luke 16 passage about the rich man, Lazarus, and all that, but it's just that I consider that change, that transformation in the human heart to be redemptive. I consider it a gift of God's grace, a good thing to vindicate God. And I think it would be worse to not vindicate God in hell. Um, you know, and I, I know this, it is prior to Judgment Day, but in the book of Revelation, when God's pouring out all this wrath, they're gnawing their tongues, but they're not repenting from anything. It doesn't change them at all. So they're already having some of the fire of God's wrath on them, and they're not, they're not repentant. So I don't know what seeing God finally, vin- you know, Judgment Day, and now you're all finally thrown in the lake of fire. Well, now I see that God's right in everything He does. I don't know, but maybe. Well, in every you know. knee bows, and every tongue yeah. proclaims, Jesus is Lord. Oh, yeah. Sure. Sure. Oh, yeah. I believe that. I believe that. So, and you may be right. I, 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 yeah. I, I think you, you may be right. And I won't, I won't go so far. I just, I know this. Hell will be a horrible place, mentally, physically, in every way. And it'd be wrong for me to speculate and say, yeah, but this would be even worse. Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's bad enough. But I, you know, I wonder about every knee bowing because even then, you know, remember how Jesus' enemies were out there to arrest him the night that he was uh, to be arrested, and he said, uh, he said, I am. And they all fall on their faces before him. I just wonder if there's an involuntary falling, you know, an involuntary just melting in the presence of Christ. I think that's what I wonder. It's just before me, every knee will bow. They're going down. And it's just like they just melt in his presence. I wonder about that.
All right, yes. Yeah. It is vindicating God. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this evening's study. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We'd be lost without it. And God, I thank you for your wisdom in setting up uh, salvation to come to us in in stages, uh, justification, sanctification, glorification, and how humbling it is for us to wrestle with our indwelling sin. Though you could just move your little finger and have it out. And you will do so at glorification. In the meantime, it's your will that for perhaps maybe decades we come face to face with our stubbornness and our lack of love for God and our and the limitations of what we're willing to do for you and the limitations of our obedience. And yet at the same time, you're, you know, yearning for more and grieving over the hardness of our own hearts and wishing we could be more like Christ and all that. It's just your wise plan to do this and to cause us to be humble and come to you again and again and say with Paul, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Oh, I, I pray that we would see your wisdom and, and, and not, not murmur against you, but every day take up our cross and, and fight the internal journey battle and the external journey battle and, and just not, not grow weary in doing good, but say, Lord, this is what you willed for us to do and, and to celebrate, uh, Lord, your wisdom in this. Thank you for this time to study tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.